Is my sound on? There we go. Okay, we've got a couple, only a couple announcements that I'm aware of. Is that um, the Camperete garage sale was a great success, and uh, they uh, were a few dollars short of hitting their goal. Not a whole lot, but they have a lot of stuff left over. So if you couldn't make it last weekend, you can make it this weekend. They're extending it uh, by popular demand, and hopefully they'll be able to uh, sell off the rest of their inventory uh, this weekend and be able to uh, take care of things for the uh, for the summer. Be in prayer for that uh, as well. I think that's the only only announcement I'm aware of. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to Make sure we're in fellowship, give you the opportunity to confess any known sins to God, and then uh, make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we have the privilege and the opportunity to gather together in freedom in this nation. And, Father, we know that there are enemies of this nation both within the nation and there are enemies of this nation outside the nation. Some of the enemies inside the nation are those that are in political office who are hostile to the freedoms of the Constitution. And we pray that in light of the horrors of the attack that occurred yesterday in uh, Boston, that this, the attempt by those who are really against the Constitution uh, that their attempts to thwart the Constitution to change things by uh, politicizing and using this situation will be will be stifled, and they will, will not be able to accomplish their ends. And, Father, we do pray for law enforcement at every level that's involved in the investigation, that they may be able to uh, determine who the guilty uh, party or parties are, and that they will be properly dealt with according to uh, the law of the land in terms of their uh, uh, trial and punishment. Father, we pray for us that as believers we might continue to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation and that we might be faithful to your word. And the only way to be faithful to your word is to know your word and to make it a part of our thinking and part of our lives that it may work itself out as God the Holy Spirit uses us, uses it to transform us into the image and likeness of Christ, or we conform to his image. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 14, and the focus in this chapter, or Acts 15, rather, the focus in this chapter deals with grace and legalism, grace and legalism. And I find that this is, as much as we talk about grace and legalism, I still discover that there are a lot of people who get very confused over what grace means and what legalism means. Uh, first of all, what they're not. Grace is not permissiveness. Grace is not antinomianism. Grace doesn't mean that it's okay to uh, do that which is wrong 
to justify it or rationalize it in some way simply because Christ already paid the penalty for sin or we can confess it later and we can be uh, forgiven by God. There's still consequences to sin. Sin is still wrong. We are prohibited in Scripture from many things and we are commanded to do many things. Emphasizing the prohibitions and the commands in Scripture Special, primarily for today, those that apply to church-age believers, it's not legalism. There are a lot of Christians I've heard over the years that if you are uh, someone who emphasizes that Scripture says this is right and this is wrong, we should not do these things, we should do these things, that they've been branded legalists. That is not legalism. Legalism is the is claiming that God's blessing is caused by whether we do or do not do certain things. That's, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, to, to insist that uh, or to recommend or encourage people or to say, you ought to read your Bible every day, it's not legalism. It's wisdom. It's applying principles of Scripture. You ought to pray every day. Scripture says pray without ceasing. God's just not flapping his jaw when he says pray without ceasing. We ought to pray every single day. And to do that, we need to have an organized life, and we need to uh, make it a plan and a purpose and set a regular schedule to develop the habit of praying every, every day. That's how we accomplish the command of praying without ceasing. Uh, to confess sins, we need to uh, develop a personal discipline of confessing our sins whenever we're aware of sin so that we can get back in fellowship and go forward in the Christian life. The issue in the Christian life is not about seeing what we can get away with, which is an abuse of grace. Now, on the other side, as spiritual infants, Christians often take advantage of God's grace and abuse God's grace. That's not right, but it is pretty normal, just like most children when they get an opportunity to take advantage of their parents' absence or their parents' uh, lack of uh, uh, <clears throat> being observant, uh, will disobey them. That doesn't make it right. That is typical of immaturity. Maturity recognizes that they might be able to get away with something, but it's the wrong thing, so they're not going to do it because it's the wrong thing. Uh, that's the difference between grace and legalism. Grace is that God does not take into account our failures as the basis for our salvation. He gives blessings to us, uh, not on the basis of who we are or what we've done, but on the basis of who he is, his character, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Grace means that that God is not conditioning his free gift of salvation or free gifts of other things to us on the basis of our personal righteousness. Now, on the other hand, uh, God has given us all of our blessings at the instant of salvation, but if we don't demonstrate the maturity and the capacity to handle blessings, then God may not distribute those to us. But the cause of receiving blessing from God is not whether or not we follow certain rituals or certain procedures or are part of a particular church or follow a certain um, code such as the Old Testament uh, law of Moses. 
This is a major issue that the early church had to resolve. It has already occurred, as we've seen, in the basic issue of what are we going to do with the Gentiles? What are we going to do with these these unclean, unsophisticated, uh, ritually ignorant, Old Testament ignorant Gentiles that are coming into the church who do a lot of things and say a lot of things that are basically offensive to an observant uh, Jew in the first century. How are they supposed to uh, treat them and handle them? Now, Acts 15, as we've seen, takes the focus is on this. This is when things come to one of the uh, uh, significant uh, decision points in how to handle uh, this issue. It's called, uh, usually referred to as the Jerusalem Council, but as I pointed out last time, it's not a formal council such as uh, church councils were in later centuries. It's more of an informal gathering of all of the uh, leaders and pastors of the church in Jerusalem where they can debate and discuss and argue about these issues and then come to a conclusion. And as I pointed out before, I think it's important to understand that was their way of making this decision. How do you resolve a theological conflict? Do you go to God in prayer and meditate quietly in your closet and wait for a little liver quiver for God to tell you what to do? Or do you exegete the scriptures, analyze the scriptures, get together, hash it out, debate, and come to a a conclusion that everyone uh, can agree on. So Paul returns from his second missionary journey. Uh, this map is really the, th- the third missionary journey, but it shows everything. Came back, they went to Antioch first, and then as we'll read in this chapter, they're going to make their way down through Phoenicia and Sidon and Tyre, encouraging the Gentile congregations along the way with what has happened on their second missionary, or excuse me, on the first missionary journey. This is a basic timeline for understanding the Apostle Paul. Uh, last time I pointed out there's some, there, there are disagreements on this, and it's not the easiest thing to work out. One problem you have is that everything in Paul's chronology is ultimately dependent upon your, your chronology for the life of Christ. When was Jesus crucified? And there have been three major date offerings by Christians over the years, 27 A.D., 30, and 33. Those are your major dates. I think every year has been suggested by somebody at one point, but those are your basic dates, and the most prominent ones are either 30 or 33. 33, I believe, is the best solution to all of the different uh, all the different issues that come up, which means that Paul would have been saved uh, in 35, uh, within two years of the of the death of Christ on the cross. Now, a problem we have in in putting this chronology together is that we'll look at in more detail tonight. So I'm just giving you a little overview so you can. Uh, get prepared for where this is going, is in uh, Galatians 2.1 where Paul says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Titus. 
Now the question is, when did when does this trip to Jerusalem occur? Because he doesn't say, well, for the second time or for the third time I went to Jerusalem. So we don't know. He doesn't pin that to anything else other than his conversion. So it's 14 years after his conversion. Now the way in which uh, chronology was counted in the ancient world is very different from the way that we count numbers today. We look at things and we say that a person, uh, the, the, the <clears throat> if a person's done something for three years, we either take it as a full three years or we take it as pretty much most of the first year, second year, most of the third year. We're, we're pretty literal in that. Whereas in the ancient world, the way they counted was different. For example, in, in both, we studied this in Kings, in both the northern kingdom and southern kingdoms at different times, the way they counted the years of a king's reign uh, differed. Uh, many times they used what was called the accession year method of counting. So let's say that the king, and we'll use our calendar for familiarity's sake, let's say the king becomes king on December the 31st of 2012. Well, 2012 then becomes the first year of his reign, even though he only is on the throne for one day. That's the first year. And let's say he dies on January the 2nd in 2020. Well, then 2020 would be the... Uh, if he came in 2012, that's the first year. That would be the, the ninth year. And so 2020 is the ninth year. And it, even though he only reigned for one day of that year, that would be counted as the ninth year. So any part of the year, no matter how tiny it might be, would be counted as a full year. So when we look at uh, the date of A.D. 35, sometime then, maybe early in that period, maybe late, uh, Paul is saved. When he says 14 years later, we count 35 as the first year. And we count, uh, if that's the first year, well, then we count up and 47 would be the, the last year. And so that would put sometime in 47 would be the, that trip that he's talking about in Galatians 2 1. We would say, well, that was 12 years. 35 plus 12 is 47. But when you're counting both as full years, it comes out a little, uh, a little differently. Um, the Jerusalem Council is generally seen to be around 49. Nobody wants to put it in 50. But if you put it any earlier, and if it's not the visit he talks about in Galatians 2.1, then you start crowding other chronologies. So this seems to be generally the best solution. And... Um, and I'm not the best at counting up numbers and everything, as you know, but at following the uh, guidance in a number of different uh, um, chronologies that are set forth, this is the one that they, uh, that they suggest uh, time-wise. Now, one problem that, uh, that, that I find in doing research on this is that the people who try to work out the chronologies, many of them, for the most part, take a 30 uh, A.D. crucifixion date. So then you have a problem because they work out a chronology that doesn't work for a 33 date. And the few people I read who took a 33 date seemed to punt the ball to somebody else for resolving the chronological problems. And so it's a little difficult to put it all, to find somebody who's tried to really work with the, the details and put it all together. Now somebody may say, well, why is this important? Well, it's important because the Bible claims to be writing 
uh, true things about what uh, what happened, and that the numbers, even the chronological numbers and chronological notations, are t- from the uh, breathed out word of God. They are inspired and thus inerrant. So, if it, if the word of God took place in space time history, then we ought to be able to resolve these conundrums. Uh, satisfactorily based on the way in which people uh, did things and used used numbers at that particular time. Now, the basic issues I've pointed out is that there have been a number of of, um, Jews, especially Pharisee background Jews, who have now trusted in Jesus as Messiah. And as they bring their law-based, rigid legalism to Christianity, and now that Gentiles want to be saved, they still think of Christianity as a Jewish-based and Mosaic law-based development uh, in the history of of God's relationship to Israel. And so they, they, they taught... And we're going around teaching, coming up to Antioch and teaching that unless a person is circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the first kind of legalism. At the bottom of the slide, I put in two types of legalism. First, there's salvation legalism. And this is the idea that a person, in order to be saved, has to do something more than simply believe in Jesus and his death on the cross for salvation. They have to believe and be baptized. They have to believe and go through some sort of ritual. In their case, it was believe and be circumcised if you were a male. And later on, it was uh, believe and have infant baptism or sprinkling or some external form of dedication. It had to do with joining a church. Uh, Many different things have been added, believe and be obedient uh, in order to be saved. In spiritual life legalism, they may believe that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but if you are going to uh, receive any of God's blessings, then you have to follow certain ritual, you have to follow the Mosaic law. Uh, In their case, uh, you had to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. You had to enter into the Mosaic covenant. Now remember, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, But for the Jews at that time, as I pointed out to you, it had become associated with the Mosaic law, and it was also emphasized because it was a sign of patriotism and loyalty to being a Jew uh, because it had been so attacked by uh, particularly the Antiochene uh, kings during the period of Syrians' dominance in the uh, second and uh, second century, third, third century, and second century BC, and I read from First Maccabees one eleven through fifteen uh, regarding that. So they this became the major issue. I'm going to skip through these slides from last time, and we looked at Acts eleven last time. This is the important the important passage. Just turn back a couple of uh, ver- uh, pages, rather, turn back a couple of pages, and this is a situation where Paul is. Um, <clears throat> Invited back to Antioch by Barnabas in verse 19, and then after a period of time of of uh, service in the church there, uh, about a year or so, there was a prophet in verse uh, 27 that came up, uh, 28, Agabus, 
who stood up and showed by the Spirit. So this is the early first century spiritual gift of prophecy. It was a temporary gift given during the time uh, before there was a completed canon of Scripture. After this canon of Scripture, after the New Testament was complete, gifts, the sign gifts such as miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues uh, were passed from the scene, revelatory gifts such as the gift of apostle, the gift of prophet, uh, these gifts also passed from the scene. The gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge also passed from the scene. But during the first century, these were very active. So there is one, one legitimate prophet, Agabus, who stands up and shows, and it's done through the Holy Spirit, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, and this happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So then the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to brethren dwelling in Judea. So they made a decision. This is the congregation coming together and saying, we are going to send financial aid to the church in Jerusalem because the famine is really hurting them. And so they collected an offering for that particular purpose and it was each according to their ability to give. And so it was a personal decision. They didn't uh, mandate a tithe. They didn't say how much each person ought to give, but it was according to how much each determined before the Lord. As Paul states in Second Corinthians, as every man purposeth in his heart, each one made their, their own decision before the Lord as to how much they would contribute for this relief. So we have an example here. Some people get uncomfortable with this, but you shouldn't be unless you're a baby believer uh, of, of the leaders in the church standing up and saying, there's a financial need. We need to raise money to meet the financial need, and we're going to take up an offering next week, the next week, or the next week in order to meet the need. Go home, pray about it, think about it, plan for it, and then we're going to take up a collection in order to meet that need. So they did that. And then they took the money and they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is referred to in chronological discussions as the famine visit, the famine visit of Paul. This is the second visit that he makes to Jerusalem. The first was not long after he was saved. And then there's this visit. So in the chart that I put up here, we have uh, Paul saved uh, 34 to 35 Paul's first Jerusalem trip, that should be changed to 35. Then you have uh, Paul goes to Antioch around the uh, spring of 43, and then he makes a, a trip to Jerusalem, the famine visit in Acts 11.30. It's after that that he goes on his first missionary journey, and after the first missionary journey in the fall of 49 that we have the Jerusalem Council. Now, the issue is... What is Paul describing in Galatians 2, 1 through 10? So turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, why this is important is because here Paul describes a journey to Jerusalem, a journey to Jerusalem where the issues that are addressed are very similar to the issues addressed in Acts 15. In this passage, they're dealing with legalism, whether or not Gentiles should be required to be circumcised 
in order to be saved. Galatians 1 and 2 deals with the error of adding the law, obedience to the Mosaic law as part of justification. This leads, this is in the first part of chapter 2, it leads to a conclusion, uh, if you look down to Galatians 2.20, it leads to a conclusion where Paul says uh, that we are justified not by the works of the law, but by faith alone. Uh, Galatians 2.20, or excuse me, 2.16. Uh, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So his point that he is making here is related to justification. In chapter 3, he's going to start dealing with the issue of sanctification, and that's where he makes the statement, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit, that is being justified, regenerated, justified by faith, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, having begun by the spirit, are you now being made perfect or complete by the flesh or by uh, human ability in observing the law or ritual or morality or things uh, such as that? So this is dealing with the same issues. If it's if it's Acts 15, then it doesn't. It's to me, it seems to have some basic uh, problems and conflicts, and that's why I think it fits with Acts 11 much better. But in doing this, we come to understand the issues a little better. Number one, and number two, it helps us to to see how even with the apostles, there's a. It's not that they change their doctrine. I'm not using the word development in that sense, but they're developing their clarity and focus and understanding of doctrine. And I'm emphasizing this because too often I find people get a quasi-mystical idea of how the apostles came to understand truth. Uh, There were perhaps times of revelation where they were given certain information but generally they had they sat and under a special type of ministry of God the Holy Spirit they studied the word and they had to figure it out through through a study of the word they didn't just sit down and and instantly come to the right answer and we see that displayed in this process i had somebody tell me one time well so and so has the gift of pastor teacher why can't they just sit down and read the bible and teach it because they're not mystical and you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, we all learn. We make mistakes. Pastors don't just sit down and God just goes, woo, 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 and sticks the truth in their brain. I mean, maybe he that that's how some people who get on television and say some of the things they say may get it, but that's not how the gift of pastor-teacher works. It's a communication gift. It's not a revelatory gift. It's not an information gift. God doesn't just, just you know, open up the top of your head, stick in a funnel, and pour, pour it in there. There has to be a study process. What does that study process involve? Well, part of it involves just understanding language, understanding how to read, understanding how to uh, do word studies, understanding basics of grammar. All of this is important, and, and that's why we stress the importance of knowing the original languages, because if you're going to study anything in, in literature, 
Uh, you're going to understand whatever the document is, whether it's a novel or whether it's a play or whether it's an opera. You're going to understand it better if you are listening to it or reading it in the original language than if you're reading a translation. Translations always miss certain things. Languages do not have a one-to-one correspondence with one another. And so you can understand... uh, the basics of what the Word of God is saying by just reading your English translation, you should never get the idea that, well, you know, I don't know Greek, so I really can't understand it. I might miss something. Let me tell you, if you read Greek and Hebrew, you're going to discover that you might miss a lot of things as well. Knowing the original language is not a magic solution to truth. And I figured that out my first year of seminary when I had numerous professors who had 8, 10, 12 years of intensive study in Greek or Hebrew and knew more about Greek or Hebrew than any pastor that I ever knew. And they disagreed vehemently on different points of doctrine because knowing the original language is not a key to solving every problem. It solves a number of problems. But guess what? It also creates a number of other problems. And and not because none of us, and by us I mean uh, pastors and, and scholars who have studied Greek and Hebrew, are native Greek or Hebrew speakers. It takes a lot of work to really understand a lot of the idioms and nuances, the, the shades of meaning. The tone, you know, we don't have things in the Bible that say this is this was said with sarcasm and then put it in brackets, or this was said in anger, or this this was said with irony. We we just don't have that, so we have to read it and read it and study it. And sometimes we we don't really get to a point in life where we have a grasp of something or catch certain things until we've looked at it maybe five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred times. And then as we continue to study, things become clear to us. Not that it was wrong to begin with, but we've gotten a tighter focus, a greater clarity, further understanding. We haven't had any breakthroughs. We just had more clarity in our thinking. And that's what happens with Paul. Starts off understanding the gospel. There's the event in Acts 10 and 11 with Peter taking the gospel to the um, uh, to the Gentiles, to Cornelius, and that was uh, that was a breakthrough because God literally uh, gave revelation to Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and this was revelatory, and that that the gospel goes freely and equally to the Gentiles as to the Jews. But then when he came back to Jerusalem and he's explaining that to the leaders in the Jerusalem church, they're having to go through a major paradigm shift in their thinking because there had always been this separation, this wall of separation, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, between Jews and Gentiles. And now they're learning that that wall of separation is gone. And they're they're wrestling with, okay, what does that actually mean in terms of day-to-day behavior? How does that affect of what we eat. We've had all of these rules that we've been following on, on what we sh- what we can eat, what we can't eat. Uh, we have different uh, things to cook with. We have uh, some pots that we can cook meat in, other pots we cook other things in. We can't mix things. Uh, and now all of a sudden, how is that changing and how does that affect things? They're just, they're struggling with going through this shift. And Peter does as well. Even after Acts 10, we're going to see what happens in... Um, in, in Galatians chapter 2, 
in this particular uh, situation here that P- this is after Peter has taken the gospel to the Gentiles, after he has uh, understood all that, he comes right back at, with his separation thing. So it wasn't, we, we look back and oh, well, you know, Peter just slow. He's just dumb. No, this is, this is a major shift in the way that, that they've always been brought up and always thought, and they're grappling with it to come to an understanding of the church age and the issue, relation of Jews and Gentiles in the church. So <clears throat> Galatians 2.1 um, as Paul talks about this visit to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and he took Titus with him. Now, there's no mention in Acts of Titus going with Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. That doesn't mean Acts is wrong. It just means Luke didn't think that that was relevant to his storyline, what he was trying to communicate. So he didn't talk about it. But he left a lot of things out. Whenever anybody writes... If you've ever written anything, you know that you have to go through. There are a lot of things you can say, but there are a lot of things you need to leave out. Not everything is necessary to say in order to make your point and drive and, and argue for your basic thesis. And so this isn't mentioned at all by uh, Luke in any of the visits of Paul to Jerusalem. That is the fact that he took Titus with him. Also, in terms of counting these 14 years, as I pointed out already, uh, any part of a year is considered a year. And so you have these years that are put together in order to arrive at our date of 47 for this, for this particular visit, which would precede his first uh, missionary journey. Galatians 2.2, and I went up by revelation, and that we're going to see that's a distinction. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice here is that he said, I went up by revelation. That means that he's not sent by some... um, uh, here in this this thing, he went up by revelation to communicate the gospel, uh, which he preached among the gospels. He goes up privately. It's not a uh, public thing. Which when we look at um, when we look at Acts 15, it's a public meeting. All the pastors from all the churches in Jerusalem are gathered together. But this is a uh, a private meeting. He goes up to communicate to them the gospel, the word. Um, uh, Communicate is a word that means to set something up, to declare it, to ascribe it. So he's, it's the best way to say it would be to communicate or declare to them the gospel, evangelion, the good news, which I preach. Now, communicated, I want you to notice here, is an aorist tense, which means it's past tense. I went up by revelation and communicated in the past to them the gospel which I preach, and that's a present tense verb. So it's talking about the fact that, that, that he's still preaching. I communicated to them in the past the gospel that I continue to preach. That's the gospel he communi- communicated to them, faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, this was the gospel he was communicating that he preached among the Gentiles. 
and he uh, communicated it privately to those who were of reputation, that is, the leaders in the church. It's a private meeting to see if they're in agreement. Now, there are the primary ways in which this is interpreted in terms of understanding it or relating it to Paul's uh, trips in Acts is that there's one group equates Acts 15 to, to uh, Galatians 2, 1 and 10, 1 through 10. And then the other group, the primary group, sees Acts 11.30 as the group, that, as the visit that is stated in Galatians chapter uh, chapter 2. Although there's a couple of other minor views. One's the liberal view that it never really happened. This is all just made up. And then there's the uh, view that, well, none of the details really agree for anything. We really don't know the answer. There was some kind of meeting, but it's not really important. Let's just forget the trying to uh, answer the historical issue and just focus on, on whatever the teaching's supposed to be. That's... Um, that's the, I don't have enough time or intelligence to figure out the problem, so let's just stick with the solutions. Some of the things we ought to point, we ought to pay attention to is that in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are sent as a part of an official uh, committee, official delegation, and official uh, envoys from the church at Antioch to Jerusalem in order to resolve uh, this dispute that's occurred in the Antioch church by these men who have come up from Judea. In Galatians 2, however, Paul says that he is prompted in, take, in going to have this private visit by revelation. He's going up by revelation, not and he's the Acts eleven thirty. He's part of this delegation to take the money, but he's going to deal with the issue of of the uh, role of the Gentiles by uh, privately. So, and the reason he's going to deal with it privately is because of revelation, whereas it's dealt with publicly by official delegation in Acts chapter uh, fifteen. So that's actually the second reason that, that uh, Acts 11.30 fits better is because Galatians uh, 2.2 describes a private meeting, not a public one, which is described in Acts chapter 15. Uh, the council or the conference in Acts 15 was a public meeting that involved lengthy discussions and presentations, addresses to the whole assembly. They argued, they debated, they discussed uh, but it's all out in the open. It was a public meeting to try to come to a clear consensus on what the Scripture taught in reference to the uh, Gentiles. Uh, the third, third reason here is that Galatians chapter 2, if Galatians chapter 2 is talking about the Acts 15 visit, then it never mentions the conclusion that was reached in the Acts 15 council. And the conclusion that was reached in the Acts 15 council was that it was fine for Gentiles to come and join the church. It wasn't; part, they didn't have to uh, pass any inspection related to the Mosaic law. They only needed to stay away from uh, things sacrificed to idols and from fornication, which everybody understood you should do anyway. That's not something unique to the Mosaic law. So. 
Galatians 2, if it's related to the Acts 15 visit, has uh, doesn't mention anything related to Acts 15, which would seem rather odd. Um, uh, fourth thing is that the conclusion of the Acts 15 visit was to tell the Gentiles that they didn't have to follow the law. They had to th- stay away from things, sacrificed to idols and, and eating uh, bloody meat and sexual immorality. Whereas in Acts chapter, I mean Galatians chapter two verse ten, uh, the conclusion is that they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So their conclusion as to what they were expecting Gentiles to do is very different in Galatians two ten from what was decided upon in Acts fifteen. So that doesn't look like those two meetings. Uh, uh, could be brought together uh, at all. So that means that this is probably describing that famine visit in Acts 11, uh, Acts 11, verse 30. Now, uh, Paul, when Paul goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas in the famine visit, he knows that he's going to have a private meeting with the leaders there. And so in order to uh, clarify the issues, he takes Titus along with him as a test case. And, tit- and the reason is is because Titus is a Gentile, and, and Titus is, has not been circumcised. So the issue is, uh, will the apostles in Jerusalem accept Titus on equal footing, or are they going to require uh, that he be circumcised? If everybody in Jerusalem gets upset at Titus because he hasn't been circumcised, then that would create major divisions and major problems within the infant church. So Paul wanted to deal with this in private so there wouldn't be a huge public uh, explosion. So this fits that scenario of the uh, famine visit uh, a, a lot better. So he then goes on to say, uh, in Acts, I mean in Galatians two three, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now the Acts eleven thirty visit comes after Peter taking the message to Cornelius in Acts chapter ten. So at that point in Acts eleven, they're understanding that Gentiles have equal access to the to to be a member of the church, the new church, and they, they're not emphasizing the Mosaic law. They have an understanding of grace. So Titus, the, the leaders in Jerusalem passed the grace test, and they're not requiring um, they're not requiring Titus to be uh, circumcised. Then in verse 4, Paul says, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, which you'll return to in Galatians 5.1, to spy out, our, uh, spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So he shows how he stood the ground uh, for grace. And then in verse 6 we read, but from those who seem to be something, 
That is, they claimed to have some sort of leadership or they had some sort of special theological insight. Um, Paul says, well, whatever it was, it didn't make any difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel was for the uncircumcised, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the uncircum or for the circumcised, that is for the Jews, was committed to Peter, and then he has a parenthetical explanation in verse eight: For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, it's in these verses that we come to understand that there was a division of focus between Paul and Peter, that Peter was primarily the apostle to the Jews, and but that didn't mean he didn't visit the Gentiles. He, he was the, God's choice to open the door to the Gentiles by taking the gospel to Cornelius the centurion in Acts 10. In the same way, just because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, it didn't mean that Paul was wrong if he took the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't being prohibited by evangelizing Jews any more than Peter was being prohibited from evangelizing Gentiles. It's just that that wasn't their primary areas of focus. So Peter is clearly, Paul clearly recognizes Peter's role as a leader in the church, but that his mission differs from Paul's mission. And so he concludes in verse 9 by saying, and when James and Kephas, this is the Aramaic name for, for Peter, it's pronounced <clears throat> with a hard K because there's no such thing as a sibilant C in, uh, in, in Greek. There's no sibilant sound there. It's a, a, like a K, Kephas. When James, Kephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So this precedes the first missionary journey. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Now I want to go on and look at the next little section in, in Galatians 2 because it shows us the confusion that went on in the early church, even with someone like Peter. So after this famine visit to Jerusalem, Peter subsequently came to uh, Antioch. And when he came to Antioch, there was a, another confrontation. We see, so we see the first, the, in this whole chain of events, the first issue is the little confrontation between God and Peter when Peter's on the rooftop and he has his tra- goes into a trance and God lowers all of the animals and says, eat. And Peter wants to challenge God and say, I can't eat all that. Those are unclean animals. So that's the first ch- problem. And then Peter finally gets the point, takes the gospel to the, to the Gentiles in Acts 10. In Acts 11, he gave a report back to the church at Jerusalem. Everything seems to be fine. And then we get to the, uh, and the uh, famine visit at the end of the chapter, and though Acts doesn't go into it, Galatians 2, 1 through 10 goes into it, that there's another uh, discussion about the role of Gentiles within the church. Then there's another confrontation that occurs back in Antioch. This is described in uh, Acts, cha- I mean Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 uh, down through verse 
um, verse 15, and then Paul begins to uh, go into a, more of a theological explanation there, but he describes his confrontation with Peter, and he says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. So Peter, we find out, has been vacillating and has been hypocritical about how he has treated Jews and Gentiles. And Paul explains that in verse 12. He says, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So when Peter came up to Antioch and he would eat with the Gentiles and he would enjoy good lobster meal and grilled shrimp and a lot of other uh, traif food. Traif is the Jewish term for non-kosher. He would enjoy a lot of other traif food. He would get up and have uh, bacon and grits for breakfast. You know, he just enjoyed life. And then when the, when, uh, uh, these Jews from James who were observant Jews and, um, uh, coming up from Jerusalem, when they came, he withdrew. He quit going out and going to the Gentiles' homes to eat. No Jew would ever go to a Gentile home to eat. That was just not acceptable. Uh, so he quit. He he quits going to their homes. He separates himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So these who are coming up from from James are stated here to be of this of the circumcision they were the Jews but they were still emphasizing circumcision and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him in verse 13 so that even Barnabas is carried away with their hypocrisy so even though we've gone through this transition of understanding with revelation from God to Peter in Acts 10 and 11 even though there's been a resolution of the issue as described in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, fitting that with the famine visit in, at the end of um, Acts 11.30, there's another meeting that's not described in Acts uh, when Peter has come up to Antioch and is being called out for his uh, hypocrisy. And it's carried away all the Jews except for Paul. Paul's the only one who's still clearly understanding the issue. Even Barnabas has been swayed. So the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw, this is verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. See, that's the issue here. Paul is keeping his eye on the objective and on the ball. It is the gospel, the purity of the gospel, that it's faith alone in Christ alone. It's not faith plus circumcision, faith plus the Mosaic law, faith plus the traditions of the fathers. It's just faith in Jesus Christ alone. And anything else is to sacrifice the truth of the gospel. So Paul challenged Peter and said to him before all of them, if you being a Jew... Live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So if you're going to go to these people's houses, you're going to go eat with the Gentiles and eat all that good tray food, then why in the world are you now going to compel them to come under the law of Moses? 
Verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, and then the famous famous verse in verse 16 that I read earlier, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And then he goes on in verse 17, he says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? There, uh, certainly not. And then he goes on to talk about the fact, verse 19, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to Christ. So since I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, loved me and gave himself for me. And I don't. And then he concludes, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That's the bottom line. If we get righteousness from what we do, then Christ died in vain. That's why the gospel excludes every manner of works. If you add anything to the gospel, you destroy the gospel. If you add anything to faith alone, you destroy the gospel. And so this is clarified. So we have the issue with with uh, Peter going to Cornelius. Then we have the visit in Acts uh, 11.30. Then we have this visit in, with this confrontation with Peter in Antioch. And then after the second uh, missionary journey with the tremendous response among the Gentiles, there's a fourth meeting in Acts 15 to deal with this issue of what is going to be required of the Gentiles. So now we can go back to Acts um, Acts 15. Uh, Acts 15, we'll look at verse, verse 3. Acts 15, 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Now, at the point of being just a little bit humorous, I think there were a lot of male Gentiles that thought it was quite uh, quite wonderful that they weren't going to have to be circumcised. I think that's that's the subtext here. There's a certain amount of humor here that we shouldn't uh, should miss. But uh, Barnabas and Paul are taking their time traveling south, and they're visiting all the congregations, and they're emphasizing. That God, this free work of grace that God is doing among the Gentiles, and that they're not required to be saved by also entering into the Mosaic law via via circumcision. And so, in verse four, we read, "When they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done." With them, so they give their after-action report uh, to the uh, apostles, and that refers to those who were of the original eleven that are left in the Jerusalem area, and the elders. And this would describe the pastors, the leaders of the local congregations in the Jerusalem area and the Judea area around Jerusalem. And so they reported everything that God had done with them. But there's a conflict that comes up because some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, I pointed that out last time, this is a perfect tense, meaning that they had already believed in the past, so these were uh, are treated clearly as believers. 
They're not, they're, their salvation is not in doubt. But now they're, they've decided after their acceptance of grace that, well, maybe we need to add a little something to the mix. And so they're standing up claiming it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, more is going on here than simply saying they need to be circumcised. They need to do something in addition to the cross in order to be saved. They're, they, they're still thinking that in order for somebody to be part of the people of God, they have to become uh, Jewish. They haven't understood the distinction between Israel and the church. So this is sort of the uh, reverse side of the, uh, to, of, the, um, of the group that comes along later on that says that God has replaced Israel with the church. That if you're going to get saved, you have to become part of the church. You can't be Jewish in any way, shape, or form anymore because God's through with Israel. It's kind of the flip side. They said if you're Gentile and you get saved, you really have to become a Jew. Now now they're saying, you know, uh, if you want to become saved, you have to become a Gentile, sort of. Uh, it's uh, it's sort of that flip side. They, 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 they didn't understand that there were two distinct peoples of God in God's plan. There was the Jewish plan in the Old Testament, and because of G- the Jewish rejection of Jesus as Messiah, God's timetable, God's plan for Israel ceased and stopped, put on hold, it's a pause, and God has generated a new people where Jew or Gentile issues are not related, only faith in Christ, and at that instant we become a new spiritual entity in the church where Jew and Gentile is not uh, not part of it. Now, just as an aside, one of the things that concerns me, and I don't know how many of you, you all have ever had any involvement with a messianic congregation. And there are many different messianic congregations or messianic types. There are some that I think they, they fail to understand this issue that they're now in the church. They're, they're not, they're, their Jewishness is not a factor in terms of anything because their reward and their inheritance is going to be with the church. It's not going to be a fu- the future land. I was reading someone just the other day, or li- actually listening to uh, someone teaching something, and they s- made this comment. I think it was kind of uh, off the cuff, but that, that he was talking to a group of Jewish believers, and he said that talking about God's permanent promise of the land to Israel, he said, that's where our inheritance will be. And I thought, no, they're all part of the church. Their inheritance is not part of the land. Jewish Old Testament believers, tribulation saints, yes, millennial saints, Jewish millennial saints, their inheritance is in, in the land. But they're neither Jew nor Greek in the church, their inheritance is not related to the land. It's distinct from Israel's, uh, God's promise to, to Israel. This is the problem. Understanding God has a distinct plan for the Jews and a distinct plan for the church. God will return to a focus on Israel after the rapture of the church. But until then, the focus is on this new entity where neither Jew nor uh, Gentile is an issue. So they come together, and they began to consider the matter. The apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, 
Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So let's just look at these uh, couple of things here. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Literally, it's the Greek verb harao, which means to look at something. So they're going to examine it. It's used metaphorically for the sense of examination, to ascertain something, to evaluate the various arguments in terms of a position. So they're going to uh, look in, look deeply into this issue. And as they do so, there arose a dispute. And this is the Greek word zetasis, which means it can mean just an investigation, but it more or less has the idea of an argument, a discussion, or a debate. They're going to hash out, and they're going to listen to all sides, and they're going to then come to a conclusion. And in the process, they give a great model of how churches and mature believers should work through details and come to a particular conclusion. They're not out for any particular agenda, and in the end, even the uh, those who are former Pharisees uh, agree with them, and they come to a conclusion. We're going to see as we come back next time in Acts 14 that first uh, Peter is going to talk, and Peter is going to address them in Acts 15, rather. Peter is going to address them in terms of what God did with him. And so we see that Peter, having been properly chastised by Paul, and the, as relayed in the second part of Galatians 2, uh, that he is sticking with a grace gospel. Uh, following his, the end of his discourse at the end of verse 11, uh, everyone's going, everyone keeps silent, and then they listen to Barnabas and Paul describe all the things that happened on the uh, first missionary journey. When they finished, then James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. He goes over what has just been said, and then he reaches a conclusion. And that conclusion is that God had announced in the Old Testament that there would be a time when Gentiles would become a part of God's work. It wasn't to be inclusive of Jews only. And so... Then they come to a conclusion as to just exactly uh, what to say in the second part of the uh, second part of the verse. So there's some good things. Uh, second part of the chapter. So there's some good things to focus on here uh, next time, especially the quote that is given in verse uh, 16 from Amos 9:11 and 12. That's a very uh, significant quote from from the Old Testament because of its emphasis on uh, God's grace to the Gentiles. So we'll come back and look at that picking up in verse, uh, <clears throat> middle of verse 7 with Peter's, uh, Peter's statement and then Paul's statement and James' statement next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on these things tonight. May we understand clearly the difference between grace and legalism, the importance of grace, and an understanding of how you are working a new work in this age where in the church there's a distinct, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are equally saved by virtue of faith in Christ. All become equal in the body of Christ, and it is through the unique body of Christ that you are working uh, to proclaim the gospel throughout all the world. We pray that you would challenge us in terms of our role in that, that we are to be every much a part of that witness. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.